Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Today we're going to explore the most outrageous account of a visit to Taiwan. Center stage in this drama is Count Maurice de Benyovsky. Am I getting that right, John? Benyovsky? Yes, Benyovsky. Okay. He came by chance upon this island in 1771. We'll look at the story, the evidence for what was fabrication, and then explain why it was, despite its fantastical elements, an influential account. So, who was this Count de Benyovsky, and what was he doing in Taiwan? He's sometimes described as Hungarian, Polish, and Slovakian. Uh, he's claimed by all three nations. Maurice Benyovsky was born in 1746 in present-day Slovakia, but it was an area then part of the Kingdom of Hungary. He had some noble blood. On his mother's side, I think, but not really a, a high noble himself. In 1768, Benyovsky traveled to Poland to join a rebellion against a Russian installed king. The next year, he was captured by Russian forces. He escaped, but was recaptured and sent to the far east of Siberia as a prisoner of war. Yeah, the far east, as in. Kamchatka, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's that massive peninsula to the north of Japan. Um, I'm imagining it's also very freezing there. Yes, and while there, the story goes that the dashing young man used his charm and powers of persuasion to befriend the governor and was able to gain considerable freedom of movement within the prison settlement. And the 16-year-old daughter of the governor fell madly in love with him. He also befriended and won the trust of his fellow prisoners, and within six months, he had a plan for escape. He stormed a fort with his fellow prisoners, then forced the Cossack guards to surrender their weapons by taking their families hostage. The escapees, nearly a hundred men and women under Benyovsky's command, seized a supply ship, the St. Peter and St. Paul, on a nearby river and set sail for a long journey home. So this was in May of 1771. That ship name is potentially confusing. The St. Peter and St. Paul. It's not two ships, but one with two saints, St. Peter and St. Paul. Ah, double the saintly protection. And they, they needed it. They weren't seamen and they were traveling into uncharted waters. They suffered badly in terrible storms. And it was three months before the ship reached Taiwan. Hmm, three months to get to Taiwan, that sounds a bit excessive to me. According to Benyovsky's written account, which was called Memoirs and Travels in Siberia, Kamchatka, Japan, the Liukyu Islands, and Formosa, published in 1790, four years after his death, uh, according to this, they didn't immediately set sail for the south. Instead, they headed north to the Bering Strait and then eastward toward North America. Okay, but Benyovsky came back west, and in the late summer spent a couple of eventful weeks on Taiwan. 
First, he anchored off the East Coast, perhaps at modern-day Suau. According to his journal, this was on August 27th. A small party that was sent inland to collect fresh water was attacked. The Europeans took revenge, killing a few hundred. The indigenous people in that area at the time would have been the Kavalan. Banyoski and his crew left the area, sailed a little north, and came upon a beautiful harbor. There he met a Spaniard called Don Jeronimo, who had lived among the locals for about seven years. The Spaniard claimed he had fled from the Philippines after killing his wife and her lover in a fit of jealous rage. And he said the local Aborigines were in a state of conflict with the tribe that had attacked Benyovsky. They wanted to uh, get some of their own revenge. So the following day, more violence ensued. The Europeans backed up with the ship's cannons and the friendly tribe, who felt indebted to the foreigners for earlier killing so many of their enemies, went to extract some more revenge. By the time Count Benyovsky was able to call a halt to the slaughter and he struggled to rein in his men, over a thousand of the enemy were dead. He was surprised to find that among the slain and prisoners, quote, there were a great number of women armed in the same manner as the men. Amazons, he's laying it on a bit thick. Anyway, this Spaniard, Don Jeronimo, acted as interpreter for Benyovsky throughout his stay and also explained to the Hungarian the facts of the island, that the western side of the island was subject to the Chinese, but the rest was either independent or inhabited by Aborigines. And he assured Benyovsky that with very little assistance, it would be possible to conquer the island and drive out the Chinese. The Spaniard introduced Benyovsky to a powerful Aboriginal chief called Huapo, who said his prophets had spoken of a stranger who would come to deliver them from the Chinese yoke. Huapo, with the Spaniard acting as an interpreter, made an offer, drive the Chinese from Formosa, and the chief would give Benyovsky a large estate and allow him to found a colony and carry out trade. Benyovsky explained that he and his men were in a hurry to return to Europe, but promised to come back. He and the chief came to an agreement on the details of establishing a colony and swore an oath. As a parting act of goodwill, the European exiles helped the chief on a military campaign, which was a great success. In appreciation, Huapo gave the Europeans some valuable gifts. Pearls, 800 pounds of silver, 12 pounds of gold, and for Benyovsky personally, 100 pieces of gold, which he shared out amongst all of his men. And then they were ready to set sail, but it took some convincing by the Count. Before departure, his officers came to him and said that they did not want to return to Europe. They'd rather stay on the island and enjoy the good life. They could establish a colony there by themselves. But the Count had suspicions about the morality of the men. He thought they would be hard to keep in check from insubordination and committing crimes. So they all boarded the St. Peter and St. Paul and set sail, rounded northern Taiwan, and then made for the Portuguese enclave of Macau. Eventually, Benyovsky ended up in France. His schemes for colonizing the island came to nothing, and his energies turned to adventures establishing colonies in another subtropical island, Madagascar. He was killed in a military engagement there in 1786. Aged just 39, I think. 
Okay, so quite a story. The Siberian part of the story is verified, but the Taiwan part is obviously, mm, how should I say this, highly embellished? No, I'm going to go with obviously bogus. Which raises the question of why? Was he just a compulsive liar, ambitious and trying to secure benefit from those lies? Uh, in particular, uh, were the fabrications and embellishments designed to appeal to any potential investors in establishing a colony? Hmm. Could be all of the above. There certainly wouldn't have been many people back in Europe who would have called him out on Formosa, especially like the east coast of Formosa. It was an age that offered considerable opportunity for fake accounts and bogus or ill-fated foreign projects. But perhaps we should also look at some of the giveaways as to why the Benyovsky story is false, because we've just given an outline of his supposed Formosan adventures, but not many details. Okay. Putting aside the unbalanced battle body counts and the Amazonian women, first of all, there's the question of population on the East Coast. It was very sparsely populated, yet Benyovsky's account has large settlements, and this Huapo leader fellow could accordingly muster up 25,000 warriors. Another obvious falsehood is the abundance of horses. Huapo had a large cavalry and plenty of spare horses to lend uh, to Benyovsky's men, uh, 60 of them, I think. <laughs> right. There were very few horses in Taiwan. As described by the Jesuit priest and mapmaker, Father Demaya, who was here back in 1714, according to the Demaya account, horses were a rarity to such an extent that the Chinese settlers rode oxen instead, which were fitted out with harnesses and saddles in the same you know, fashion as, as horses. It's hard to imagine then that less than six decades later, the Count would be able to say that his Formosan ally had 250 horsemen and that cattle, sheep, and goats and poultry are all very abundant because Demaya wrote that sheep and goats were very rare. Yes, there was a real voyage from Siberia to Macau, drama enough, but the Formosan part is fictional or largely fictional. What information he has, he could have obtained from existing sources, from uh, charts, journals, previous voyages, from other adventurers. And yet, in spite of all the nonsense, his account of Formosa lasted as a text of Formosan history into the 1900s, used in standard sources, both Western and Japanese. Mm -hmm. It's likely that Benyovsky only made a brief, uneventful stopover in Taiwan. Actually, upon reaching Macau, and relating the details of his trip from Siberia to the Portuguese authorities, he made no mention of his Formosan adventure. <laughs> Interesting. So is there evidence that he actually stopped in Taiwan? We know for sure he was in Siberia, he escaped to Macau, but the Formosa section, could it not be um, not just perhaps 90% nonsense, but uh, let's say 100% nonsense? It's an unsolved mystery. I wouldn't bet my life on him uh, having come here. Yeah, the thing is, he, he doesn't mention Formosa in his very early accounts. If he had just stopped over here briefly, maybe he didn't think it was important enough to mention. But then maybe later when he was looking to dress up his adventures, 
perhaps he chose Formosa as the place to get creative with because he figured it was so little known about. You said the thing is, is that he didn't mention Formosa in very early accounts. Uh, very early accounts. What do you mean by that? In a note written by the Count himself in Macau, he says that after taking in wines at Nagasaki, they sailed past the Isles of Eugenia. I think that's somewhere in um, the Rukus. As far as Formosa and the Isle of Bassi, Bassi uh, Strait uh, between Formosa and the Philippines. And then they lastly took the straight course to Macau. Doesn't say he stopped in Formosa. And in an English publication called The Gentleman's Magazine, just before the book came out, they give a, a brief account of Benyovsky's adventures, but there's no mention of Formosa. And later, he outlined a simpler version of his Formosa story. He told the governor of Mauritius that on arriving in Formosa, quote, I found myself attacked by the inhabitants who killed three of my men. After avenging their death, the winds, always contrary, obliged me to make for the continent of China, coasting along some small islands known under the name of Piscatoria, and the want of water compelled me to enter by open force into Tanasoa and to attack the Chinese, who endeavored to prevent me from procuring a supply. I then sailed to Macau, a city belonging to Her Most Faithful Majesty, where I arrived on the 22nd of September, 1771. That sounds more reasonable. No large-scale fighting, just a brief visit in a couple of places. Piscatoria, the Piscadores, Penghu Islands, yeah? Mm. Tanasoa, mm, Tamshui, Danshui, which, that's backtracking, right? It's possible, but mm, it's the wrong order, right? It should have been Ilan, and then Danshui, and then Penghu. Yeah, but maybe something to do with the winds or a monsoon or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Of course, we shouldn't forget the Count. He wasn't the only man on the ship. So some of Benyovsky's crew were encountered later in the decade in various places. And there are credible accounts of these meetings. The Count's former colleagues failed to mention Formosa when they uh, recounted their long sea journey. Mm. I found that out in an academic paper by N. Ingster. It's called Oriental Enlightenment, the Problematic Military Experiences and Cultural Claims of Count Morris Auguste Comte de Bernovsky in Formosa during 1771. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you recommend that as a read for listeners? Hardcore ones, yes. <laughs> it has good info, but there's a lot of uh, academic framing and vocabulary. I quote, perhaps Benyovsky may be best located within the conjuncture of the late Enlightenment and the renewed transmogrification of the Orientalist, in quotation marks, discourse. In such a perspective, Benyovsky is exemplary of a complex European search for identity, strengthened in the traveler's account of the other, and especially in a reconstructed and invigorated Western Orientalism. Whoa. Okay, so... On the bright side, that kind of stuff uh, scares off regular folks and leaves us lots of material we can use in a more accessible storytelling format. But, ooh, yeah, that's uh, some, some jargon. Yep, hidden behind all the academic words, uh, which make me wince. Oh, I'm especially allergic to uh, contested uh, modernity, liminal, liminality. Any mention of Edward Said's Orientalism. Ah. Yeah, but uh, behind uh, a lot of the academic stuff is uh, yeah a lot of nuggets uh, we can use. 
So would you mind pointing out any particular nuggets in this paper that you particularly liked? Yeah, there are a lot, but one would be how there was skepticism about Banyovsky's travels from the very beginning. There's a note in this paper from the Gentleman's Magazine, which ran a brief version of his voyage, but they had a warning that Banyovsky, by his own admission, was, quote, little influenced by a regard to truth or indeed any principle of morality, whatever, end quote. I love that. Little influenced by any regard for the truth or, or morality, whatever. Yeah, okay, so skepticism. But what's that saying? Too good to check? The story was too good to check or perhaps too good not to run? Indeed, indeed. Uh, and the original memoirs were written in French, translated into English by a uh, reputable translator. So I think that helped give a little respectability. And it was a useful story for colonial projects. For example, the Benyovsky story was embraced by Imperial Japan. Japan was looking to become a great colonial power in Asia. The Japanese rulers sought to spread the idea of Chinese being unfit to rule. They're degenerate, corrupt, cruel, ignorant, weak. So the Japanese liked the Benyovsky story with the Chinese and Aborigines in uh, continual conflict, um, and the latter as wild but possible allies, and the island ripe for foreign men of action, for colonizing. And there's a fascinating passage in an unpublished manuscript of 1874 from Charles Legendre. You remember uh, Legendre? Oh, yes. He was a French-born American officer who served during the American Civil War, and then uh, later a diplomat. He was the American consul in Xiamen, Fujian, and seeing as Taiwan was then a prefecture of Fujian, he was involved in events here. In fact, he was the protagonist of a, a big TV series here called Sekalu. In the 1870s, he was then an advisor to the Japanese government. Yeah, and he was advising the Japanese in this passage I've given you. He thought the Japanese could emulate Benyovsky. Okay, so here's the piece. Legendre writes, Benyovsky, with only a small vessel and a few adventurers, established a settlement which would have become considerable and prosperous. With her resources, Japan could easily accomplish that which one man came so nearly doing with such limited means at his disposal. She, meaning Japan, could establish military stations at the mouths of the streams at which vessels can anchor and send their persons condemned to confinement for political offenses to open up relations of trade and amity with the natives, who, being nearly of the same race as the Japanese, would rapidly become civilized under the tutelage of these teachers. That's amazing, isn't it? Using a bogus account as part of an argument for colonizing the island. Right. This was an influential person and one who knew the region. We're talking about Legendre. And he'd made many trips and traveled throughout Taiwan. And did you catch that reference to the Japanese settlement being manned by those condemned to confinement for political offenses? So that would make it a convict colony like Australia now. Yes, though a better class of convict, apparently. Not, <laughs> uh, you know, convicts for political offenses, not your common thief. <laughs> right. Legendre's plan was not quite as ambitious as Benyovsky's. The Hungarian count wanted to drive the Chinese off the island. But Legendre writes, as for the Chinese portion of the island, it ought to be strictly respected. All that Japan would require would be that in carrying out these plans for the pacification of Aboriginal Formosa, 
which could thus become an integral portion of the empire, she would receive a full and cordial support from the Chinese government. Rather an optimistic view, uh, but of course events soon caught up with the plan because the Japanese did try this in that very year, 1874, the so-called expedition of 1874, really an invasion of the East Coast. And the Chinese were very far from happy. Yeah, there was no support from the Chinese government. It's worth looking at the details of the proposed colony that Benyovsky laid out for Taiwan. His plan was to create a European colony on Formosa, whichever government or company was willing to finance it. He set out 23 points. So who was going to run this colony? Oh, well, hmm, you get no points for guessing. It would be the Count himself. He was to be given three vessels, provisions, and 1,200 men, arms, and goods to trade. And for a period of three years, he'd have the right to raise recruits of up to 400 men a year. And also he could transport over 200 children of both sexes annually. So he's looking to populate the island with Europeans. Hmm. Hmm, yeah, indeed. The Benyovsky story was used by the Japanese after they gained control of Taiwan in 1895 as part of their justification, certainly not a major part of it, but one of the many examples they used to create the version of history that they wanted. Yes, the story featured in a book called Japanese Rule in Formosa, written by Yosoburo Takakashi, a member of the Japanese government. Uh, this book was published in English in 1907, and it's very much in praise of the Japanese colonial project in Taiwan. Takakashi writes, quote, In short, Japan can point to her successes thus far in Formosa as proof of her worthiness to be admitted into the community of the world's great colonial powers. End quote. He describes the administration and development of the island, but also goes over the history. And the point of this history is political, to show the Chinese as unfit rulers and settlers. Yeah, he continues, he says, The Chinese, by their cruelty and wickedness, made the savages their undying enemies. But the following story will show how deep-seated this enmity was. And then he relates how Benyovsky had military victories against the natives, befriended this Huapo uh, chief, and the plans to drive out the hated Chinese and establish a colony. There's another book, James Davidson's The Island of Formosa, Past and Present, which was published in 1903. It was the most important English nonfiction work of the early Japanese colonial period. It's a monster in size, large format, about 700 pages, probably weighs four pounds. It was the first comprehensive study of Taiwan to appear in English, and as a result, was influential in shaping opinions, and for a very long time. Yeah, James Davison was a very interesting individual. He was a war correspondent who witnessed the first eight years of Japanese rule on Taiwan. He was 22 when he arrived in Taiwan in March of 1895. He covered the Japanese military occupation, the Taiwanese resistance, and then he stayed in Taihoku, Taipei, becoming the first U.S. consul to Taiwan in 1898 and serving five years until his departure. Davidson's book is very pro-development, pro-Japanese, anti-Qing, anti-Chinese, and he liked the Benyovsky story so much, he included a whole chapter on it, about four and a half thousand words. And it's only at the very end that he gives a really weak warning uh, that 
not all of the statements of Benyovsky's account are of undoubted veracity. <laughs> yeah, Davidson draws attention to two points. He writes, It's extremely doubtful whether the Aborigines were in possession of horses. Travelers on the East Coast, at least, have not met with roads made by the Aborigines, which struck them as suitable for cavalry. Nor have they known of the Formosan savage who possessed either gold or silver, in large quantity, or even pearls. The gold, silver, and pearls were probably included as a relish to his description. End quote. And that's the extent of Davidson's pushback. Even today, Count Benyovsky is not entirely forgotten. He seems to be relatively well known uh, in Hungary, Poland, and Slovakia. And here in Taiwan in 2021, there was a special exhibition to commemorate the 250th anniversary of his landing. Yeah, that's right. The exhibition was called The Encounter of Count Maurice Benyovsky and Elon in 1771. It was held at the beautiful Laiyang Museum in Elon County. That's in northeastern Taiwan. We've run out of time for book recommendations, but Eric, uh, you will put some up on the Formosa Files website. Yes, I will. And it's always worth having a look at our website anyway. You'll find extra material, photos, links, all kinds of stuff, formosafiles.com. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate it very much, and we appreciate all your support and letters and all of that, and we are looking forward to bringing you Season 3 very soon. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. <laughs>